previously on Breakdown. Yes, a, a lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, um, telling me that you know I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. A lot of them were racist. A lot of them were just hateful. We're so far ahead of these numbers. Even the phony ballots of, uh, of Ruby Freeman, known scammer. You know the internet? You know what was trending on the internet? Where's Ruby? Because they thought she'd be in jail. Where's Ruby? Um, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. That was, the minimum number is 18,000 for Ruby but they think it's probably about 56,000. But the minimum number is 18,000 on the Ruby Freeman night where she ran back in there when everybody was gone and stuffed. She stuffed the ballot boxes. Let's face it, Brad. I mean, they did it in slow motion replay magnified, right? She stuffed the ballot boxes. They were stuffed like nobody's ever seen them stuffed before. I mean, look at the the best evidence they got is this tape recording from January 2nd between Brad Raffensperger and Trump. I mean, asking him to go find the votes, trying to play on the fact that he's a fellow Republican. I mean, that, when you put it in the context of everything else, I mean, the star witness in Georgia is going to be Donald Trump. Last Tuesday, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made his appearance before the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury investigating former President Donald Trump and his allies. On Wednesday, it was Cassidy Hutchison's turn. She's the former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Oh, to have been a fly on the wall in that grand jury room. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's legal affairs reporter. And I'm senior reporter Tamar Hallerman. Also Tuesday, Trump made it official that he's running for president once again. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. So we now have a candidate running for president who's under criminal investigation and could very well be under indictment sometime next year. The stakes keep getting higher and higher. In this episode, we have an exclusive interview with Robert McBurney, the judge overseeing the special purpose grand jury investigation. We also have an update on the out-of-state material witness summons served on Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security advisor. This is episode 19, The Referee, of season 9 of Breakdown, The Trump Grand Jury, from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
In October 2021, the Brookings Institute put out a report titled Fulton County, Georgia's Trump Investigation. 114 pages long, it was a very thorough account of all the public information that had come out so far, and it ticked off the Georgia criminal statutes that could come into play. It's been quite a resource. Well, last week Brookings released the second edition of the report. It's now 304 pages long, thanks largely to all of the additional information that's been made public by the Select Committee on Capitol Hill. Once again, it lists possible crimes that may have been committed. It also delves deep into possible defenses Trump would bring if he's ultimately indicted. So we talked to two of the report's authors, Norm Eisen, a breakdown regular, and Gwen Keyes Fleming, the former district attorney in DeKalb County, who's now a private attorney. To be sure, they qualify their comments by saying they do not know all the evidence that's come into the grand jury's possession. But as for a possible indictment, compared to what they knew then, as to what they know now? I think it's fair to say that the risk is even more substantial now than it was when we looked at it. But if you're asking me if I think Donald Trump's in a deeper legal hole and Georgia than he was when we issued the first edition a year ago. Yes, I do. He faces uh, the greatest peril of his long and storied career of tiptoeing up to the edge of legal liability. He's been doing it since he started in the 1970s. This is by far the most peril he has ever faced. Fleming says she sees a substantial likelihood of charges involving the slate of fake Republican electors. Things like forgery in the first degree, as we think about an allegation that fake electors signed a document purporting to be the officially elected representatives or the officially elected electors, when that in fact was not the case, and then delivering that document to the National Archives In addition, criminal solicitation of things like first-degree forgery, as facts in the public record suggest that folks in the former president's circle may have helped recruit some of those electors or facilitate the creation of these false documents or forged, uh, allegedly forged documents. Fleming has known Fulton DA Fonnie Willis for quite some time. We talked to her a few days before Trump announced he's running for president, although it seemed certain at the time he was going to. So we asked her, if Trump does run again, would that change the dynamics for D.A. Willis? It certainly does not change Fani's responsibility as the elected district attorney to look at all allegations or all facts and make the determination as to whether a crime occurred. It also does not change her responsibility to investigate and pursue charges where appropriate without fear, favor, or affection. That is the oath that every district attorney takes. And that means she should proceed or evaluate her evidence without fear from individuals that want her not to pursue charges. And she should do it without favor from individuals that might want her to pursue Charges. So in that sense, the facts and the law do not change Monday, Tuesday, or any time after. 
Eisen says Willis, like any prosecutor, needs to just focus on the facts and gather as much evidence as she can. And whether it's the president, the ex-president, someone running for president, or just the average person who did those kinds of things, shouldn't matter. The blindfold that we always see on Lady Justice holding the scales and those statues in front of courthouses, that's what that blindfold is all about. Now, of course, you know, D.A. Willis lives on planet Earth, not some ethereal dimension where you don't know what's going on in the world. And the reality is that whatever she does, even if he hadn't announced, going to be made a political football by Trump and his allies. So uh, I don't think she should let that influence her in any way, even though it will probably heighten some of the, in my view, meritless political attacks around these issues. The fact is that her citizens elected her to protect them. And she's taking that job very seriously. And in this particular case, her, her decisions, particularly as they relate to protecting the integrity of not only the criminal justice system, but also the election system, that should not be given short shrift. This is an important matter. I think all of us would agree with that. It has important implications, not just because of the parties involved, but the issues at stake. And so she is one that's going to rise to the moment. And bottom line, it's about accountability at any level, at the state level, at the federal level. And I think that's what we should be focused on. If laws were broken, people need to be held accountable. Eisen notes that Trump's lawyers in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation contend Trump enjoys immunities because he was president. And it's likely, if charged by a Fulton grand jury, Trump will raise the same claims. But Eisen predicts these claims will fail. When you have behavior as here that is so far beyond the pale, I mean, it is no part of a president's job description for him to break state laws in pursuit of a second term, which he did not win. That's just nowhere to be found in the Constitution or laws that are the presidential job description. When you have behavior that is as far out as this, there is no protection for it. Otherwise, to go back to where you started, it would not be American democracy. The, we started our democracy with the idea that, you know, rather than having a king who is above the law, who is the law, that no one is above the law, that it is the law that is supreme. So why would we now, after two and a half centuries, want to turn around and make a different rule for Donald Trump? That wouldn't make sense. Fleming thinks Willis made a good decision having a special grand jury initiate the investigation. Being able to review the special grand jury's report and its recommendations is going to be very telling and provide a roadmap for Fani and her team. So this is a case where obviously she has a lot of discretion, she has a lot of responsibility, but she also has a lot of accountability to her special grand jurors, and she has been wise enough to get their counsel and not make these decisions just within her DA's office. So that review, that external review and the recommendations coming out of it really will help guide her steps, I think, and give us all a preview as to what we might expect 
or how we might expect a potential jury, if we get that far, to view these facts or some of the facts. Obviously, the defense counsel will have their own facts to present, but it gives us at least a preliminary look how some of the facts will be reviewed. Eisen has been doing criminal law for more than three decades, principally as a defense lawyer. He says he sees overwhelming evidence regarding the phone call to Raffensperger and the fake slate of Republican electors. I don't see how he does not get criminally charged together with others who were involved in both of those schemes. And the facts are powerful. The law is clear cut. The defenses fail. And he's extremely exposed to criminal liability. Now, we don't have all the evidence that the DA, her team, and the grand jury has. Um, or the evidence presented and strategies by defense counsel on the ground. So that all and, makes it, and, that'll make it yeah. interesting for sure. So we don't have all the evidence that is available to the DA pro and con, but boy, it is hard to see how he doesn't get charged. Tuesday morning, November 15th, was cold and rainy. Pretty miserable to be standing outside the Fulton County Courthouse, waiting for Governor Brian Kemp to appear and finally give his testimony before the special grand jury. Bill and I were covering the building's two main entrances. Our colleague, Wilborn Nobles, was across from the guarded entrance to the courthouse garage that's used by judges and other court staff. It's the preferred route of witnesses who don't want to deal with the media often camped out on the main courthouse steps. And as we expected, Kemp and his security detail entered through the garage entrance. He testified for almost three hours and then left without giving any public comments. His appearance represented a hard-fought victory for the Fulton DA's office, which has been angling for Kemp's testimony for a year and a half. Kemp is a central witness to the investigation. In late 2020, he faced a barrage of attacks from Trump and his allies after he refused their calls to illegally convene a special session of the state legislature to undo President Joe Biden's narrow victory in Georgia. Kemp said that state law barred him from such interference. Kemp then became a frequent punching bag at Trump rallies. And your rhino governor, Brian Kemp, who's been a complete disaster on election integrity, a complete and total and I'm not looking to say that. I'm not looking to say that. He's been a complete and total disaster on election integrity. You may remember that Trump even handpicked a candidate, former Senator David Perdue, to challenge Kemp in the Republican primary for governor. It didn't go too well for Perdue. That's putting it mildly. Perdue lost by 50 percentage points. But we digress. Fulton prosecutors have said they were interested in asking Kemp about the identities of the people who tried to get in touch with him following the 2020 elections and the contents of phone calls Kemp had with Trump or his associates. All very important stuff. After Kemp's appearance, Cassidy Hutchinson testified before the special grand jury. In a statement, her lawyers, Jody Hunt and William Jordan, said Hutchinson, quote, was pleased to cooperate with the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury and answer questions with respect to its inquiry into events surrounding the 2020 election. 
We've gone over in detail what Hutchinson told the House Select Committee. Legal experts say her testimony before the special grand jury could help prosecutors establish criminal intent. Among her most notable comments was her recollection of what she heard Trump say when she and Meadows crossed the president's path after a Christmas party. Trump was fuming about the U.S. Supreme Court's decision earlier in the day not to hear an appeal of a lawsuit contesting the election. The president was fired up about the Supreme Court decision. And so I was standing next to Mr. Meadows, but I stepped back, so I was probably two, three feet catty-corner from her diagonal from him. The president's just raging about the decision and how it's wrong and why didn't we make more calls and... Just his typical anger outburst at this decision. And the president said, he had put the, so he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. Okay, let's turn to Michael Flynn who served as Trump's national security advisor in early 2017. Later that year, he pled guilty to making false statements to the FBI during special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. In November 2020, Trump granted Flynn a full pardon. Fulton prosecutors are seeking Flynn's testimony because they want to ask him more about comments he made during a December 17, 2020 appearance on Newsmax. Flynn's material witness subpoena also says that Flynn met with former Trump campaign attorney Sidney Powell, who was previously called by the special grand jury, to discuss seizing voting machines and invoking martial law. As with all witnesses who live out of state, Fulton prosecutors had to get approval from a local judge before they could compel Flynn to come testify in Atlanta. We need to let you know that we didn't go to Sarasota, Florida, where the hearing was held. We watched it on Zoom. And under the court's rules, we could not record it remotely to provide you with the audio. So here's our recap. Circuit Judge Charles Roberts presided over the hearing. Flynn was there, accompanied by his two attorneys. One of them, Jason Greaves, did all the talking. Like we expected, he argued that the Fulton Special Purpose Grand Jury, because it can't indict, is a civil, not a criminal, grand jury. For that reason, he said Flynn's out-of-state summons does not have to be honored in Florida. Greaves also said Fulton prosecutors had failed to show that Flynn's testimony is material and necessary. He described the certificate served on Flynn as a document filled with, quote, innuendo, speculation, and supposition. Will Wooten from the Fulton DA's office appeared remotely. He said Florida law doesn't distinguish whether a grand jury has to be civil or criminal, only that a, quote, grand jury, unquote, has to be in operation. And he said Judge Robert McBurney had previously ruled the special purpose grand jury was a criminal proceeding. Wooten also said something very interesting, which he did not elaborate upon. He said there are several reasons why Flynn's testimony is material, one of which is, quote, circumstances related to his pardon. That occurred just before Thanksgiving in November 2020. Wooten then noted Flynn's appearance a few weeks later on Newsmax. Here's what he said. I think that the, uh, well, number one, President Trump won on the 3rd of November. The, uh, the things that he needs to do right now is he needs to appoint a special counsel immediately 
He needs to seize all of these Dominion and these other uh, voting machines that we have across the country. He needs to go ahead and uh, prioritize by state and probably by county, Fulton County, Maricopa County, as an example. These machines are clearly, clearly there is a there is a foreign influence that is tied to this system. And it goes back to China, likely goes to Russia, likely goes to Iran. We know that Venezuela has participated in the development of these machines. There's been problems all over the country with them. This uh, not only Dominion, but also this Smartmatic software. So he, he's got a couple of options that he can take. And he needs to take them. He needs to take them right now. Wooten also noted the White House meeting on December 18th with Trump campaign officials and attorney Sidney Powell, in which those same topics were discussed. Also proposed was appointing a special counsel to investigate possible election fraud. Greaves countered that he was, quote, disturbed particularly by the innuendo of Flynn's pardon. As for martial law, the seizure of voting machines, and the appointment of a special counsel, Greaves said, quote, None of that happened. It's utterly irrelevant. But Wooten argued that because those topics were even discussed, it's highly relevant. In the end, Judge Roberts said he was persuaded by Wooten's arguments and Judge Robert McBurney's ruling on the special purpose grand jury. He ordered Flynn to go to Atlanta on November 22nd and testify, finding him a material and necessary witness. Greaves then asked the judge to stay his decision to allow an appeal. When Judge Roberts asked Wooten what harm it would do if he were to issue a stay, Wooten's response caught our attention. He said, quote, There are very few witnesses left, this witness being one of them. So, hearing that, we don't anticipate that the grand jury will go on much longer. So who's left? We know the special grand jury wants to hear from Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows, Newt Gingrich, Flynn, former White House counsel Eric Hirschman, and Stephen Lee, the pastor in Illinois who allegedly visited the home of Fulton County poll worker Ruby Freeman. Attorneys for Meadows, Gingrich, and Flynn have all filed paperwork in the last week in their respective states to appeal judges' orders directing them to testify. And we just learned the Court of Appeals of Virginia granted a stay of the order requiring Gingrich to go to Atlanta and testify. The court said the stay is in effect pending the outcome of Gingrich's appeal, however long that lasts. Graham is expected to appear before the grand jury on November 22nd, after the Supreme Court lifted a stay on his testimony as his appeal was being considered. Still looming out there? Whether to summon Trump to Atlanta. But it seems clear the special grand jury's work is nearing the end. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Now we have something special for you, an interview with Judge Robert McBurney, who's presiding over the grand jury. McBurney has had to make some pretty big decisions during the grand jury investigation, like disqualifying the Fulton DA's office from investigating State Senator Burt Jones, the fake elector who's about to become our next lieutenant governor, and ruling that Governor Brian Kemp had to testify before the special grand jury. 
Bill Torpy is the AJC's Metro columnist. Since you heard from him in episode 14, he decided to write a column about McBurney, and Bill recorded his interview and the judge said we could use it. Of course, the judge was not going to talk about the special purpose grand jury investigation, and Bill knew better not even to ask him about its inner workings. Bill decided to write the column because it seems like McBurney's been the hardest working judge in the judiciary. It's like the biggest ongoing cases in Georgia have a common denominator. McBurney's the one presiding. When McBurney finally got a break in the special grand jury proceedings, he had to preside over the first disciplinary hearing in Georgia history of a state appellate judge. In his spare time, McBurney chairs a three-person hearing panel for all disciplinary cases brought against Georgia judges. The week-long hearing was held by the State Judicial Watchdog Commission, which files ethics charges against wayward judges. In this case, it was against a state court of appeals judge who stands accused of numerous violations of the Code of Judicial Conduct. Just a few days after that, McBurney returned to his day job to preside over one of the most closely watched cases in the state, a case that was randomly assigned to him. He heard arguments from abortion rights supporters who asked him to block Georgia's new law that bans most abortions once a doctor can detect fetal cardiac activity. That's typically about six weeks into a pregnancy and before many women even know they're pregnant. Last Tuesday, McBurney struck down the law in a 15-page decision. And it was vintage McBurney. It was extremely well-written with pointed footnotes and clear reasoning. In essence, McBurney ruled that when the Georgia legislature passed the law in 2019, it was unconstitutional on its face at that time. That's because Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land. McBurney wrote, Georgia's 2019 law was, quote, void at birth, and it cannot, quote, spring to life because of the Supreme Court's ruling that later overturned Roe v. Wade. In other words, it was dead on arrival when it was enacted and remains dead in the water now. He also wrote, quote, what does this ruling mean? Most fundamentally, it means that courts, not legislatures, define the law. This is nothing new, but it seems increasingly forgotten or ignored. McBurney called the legislators' votes in 2019 symbolic because of the way the law stood at the time. He said they're free to try again, quote, under the sharp glare of public attention that will undoubtedly and properly attend such an important and consequential debate. McBurney's ruling was reported by the news media nationwide. The day after the ruling came out, which was also the day Governor Kemp testified, McBurney was presiding over the ethics trial of a North Georgia judge who was in hot water for pulling a gun on a law enforcement officer. And one more thing, McBurney runs one of Fulton County's two drug courts, trying to get addicted offenders off of drugs and out of prison. On top of all that, McBurney recently oversaw a bond motion for former Atlanta lawyer Tex McIver. If you listen to season five of Breakdown, you know this case well. McIver, sitting in the back seat of his SUV, shot his wife Diane in the back as Diane's best friend was driving the couple home. Diane later died during surgery. McIver said it was an accident, that he'd nodded off with the gun in his hand. But Fulton prosecutors convinced a jury to convict him of felony murder. McBurney, who presided over the trial, sentenced McIver to life in prison. But this past June, the Georgia Supreme Court reversed McIver's conviction and granted him a new trial on the murder charge. His influencing a witness charge was upheld, and he served five years behind bars for that. 
MacIver is now 79 years old, and Fulton prosecutors say they will try him again. So his lawyers asked that MacIver be released on bond. They said he could live in Texas with his sister, Dixie, and that he'd wear an ankle monitor while he waited for his new trial date. But McMurney wasn't having it. Here he is at the end of that hearing. I also have before me a man who has heard a jury say you are guilty of felony murder and will spend the rest of your natural life in jail. Not quite accurate. You'd be eligible for parole after 30 years and you might outlive everyone's expectations and be around for a parole hearing, but effectively you were sentenced to jail for the rest of your life. I think it is reasonable and appropriate for me to consider that you, Mr. MacGyver, never ever want to hear that again. And the best way to do that is to not come back. The best way to do that is to have a bond where you are living in Texas and you can disappear. Ankle monitors don't keep people around. I've had too many defendants cut their ankle monitors and disappear. You don't have to be a fugitive for very long to enjoy the rest of your life a free man. And that worries me. To me, that is a powerful incentive for you, Mr. MacGyver, not to come back to court to face much of the same evidence. So, no bond. MacGyver is now sitting in jail awaiting his retrial. Here's a brief intro to his honor. McBurney is 54 years old. He grew up in Oakland. He got his undergraduate and law degrees from Harvard University. After graduating, he moved to Atlanta, not to become a lawyer, but to work for a management consulting firm. Here he is talking to Bill Torpy while driving back from Athens, Georgia, where he attended a conference for accountability courts. He explains why he decided to become a lawyer. So I didn't practice law for the first three years after I finished law school. And it was very interesting, high paying, all that kind of stuff. But it it wasn't get me up in the morning. It was kind of dreary and I just wasn't motivated by helping Fortune 100 company add two pennies to their earnings per share. Some folks are very passionate about it, help big companies do what they do even better. Um, But I figured out after a couple of years that 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 isn't something that motivated me. It was kind of glamorous, jetting around the world, and you meet with the CEOs and this and that. And I was not leading any of these projects. I was initially a number cruncher and then given responsibility to run a team, that kind of thing. But the work that was done isn't something that um, propelled me. McBurney said he thought about the externship he did while in law school, working for the DA's office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was fascinating going into court and doing that. And I thought, why not do some of what I really enjoyed when I was in law school and see what happens? So McBurney applied for a prosecutor's job at the Fulton DA's office, and he got it. Not long into his tenure, McBurney was assigned one of the highest profile cases in Georgia. Jamil Al-Amin, once known as civil rights activist H. Rat Brown, had been charged with shooting and killing a Fulton deputy and wounding his partner. The DA's office sought the death penalty against Alamine. The prosecution team got the murder conviction, but the jury spared him from a death sentence. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. After about three years at the Fulton DA's office, McBurney became a federal prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta. It was there he got another high-profile case. Two young men, 
one a former Georgia Tech student, were charged with conspiring to provide material support to terrorist groups here and overseas. I covered that trial, which was, well, trying. That's because both defendants acted as their own attorneys. It was pretty tortuous and disturbing. In 2005, the two men had taken a bus to Canada and plotted with like-minded extremists. They talked openly of attacking oil refineries and disabling the GPS satellite system. Both men were convicted and sent to prison. After a decade at the U.S. Attorney's Office, McBurney surprised many by putting in his name for an opening on the Fulton County bench. Here's Bill asking the judge why he wanted to do such a thing. I mean, you got an interesting, compelling job, uh, certainly secure with the feds. Why jump into, you know, a, a Fulton Courthouse, you know, which is traditionally, you know, overworked and, you know, kind of crazy. I mean, you've obviously seen, seen that yourself. Uh, so what was, you know, when, when there were people say, I, were people saying that to you, you know, saying, you know, what, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> you really want to be that dog that caught the school bus? <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, they did. Um, being an assistant U.S. attorney was a phenomenal job. Um, loved it. Uh, but I had done it for 10 years. Um, looked around and saw the careerists, and, and they remained happy with what they were doing. But they were doing sort of the same thing uh, at year 20 and year, year 30. And I was ready for something different. Now, it wasn't totally different. I wasn't going to go be a baker. Um, it was still criminal justice. Um, slightly different role and a different forum, not one that I was unfamiliar with. But uh, it was just time for, a, a, I guess, a slight reinvention. Governor Nathan Deal, a Republican, appointed McBurney to the Fulton bench. McBurney says one of the most meaningful things he's done on the court is oversee one of Fulton County's accountability courts. It's a court that uses a carrot-and-stick approach to keep people out of prison and get them off drugs so they can pursue an education or get a job. I've seen these courts in operation and attended graduation ceremonies. And I mean it. When you see a graduate give his or her story with sobbing loved ones looking on from just a few feet away, you can't help but tear up too. It is so powerful. McBurney says he volunteered to be a drug court judge. So um, it is focused on the causes of a client's um, issues with criminal justice. So we focus on high-risk, high-needs individuals. These who've probably been arrested 20 times and got six convictions for hurting anyone, but for breaking into your car to take your iPad because you were dumb enough to leave it on the front seat. And they'll fence it for 20 bucks because that'll get them their next fix. And those folks are in and out and in and out of jail and court and court and jail. And locking them up doesn't fix anything. What fixes something is giving them the tools to manage their addiction. Um, which is a form of mental illness. And so these accountability courts are focused on providing that intensive treatment, but with accountability, you can't walk away from it. If you want, it's a, it's a, typically it's a condition of probation. So I sentenced Torpy to five years probation with uh, a special condition that you complete drug court. If you walk away from drug court, because we don't lock you down, 
um, we'll find you. And when we do, I'm going to revoke a whole bunch of your probation and have you do what we call RSAT, which is Residential Substance Abuse Treatment Program, which is drug court, but the doors lock on the outside. No one wants to do that. McBurney says participants, he calls them clients, who commit another crime will very likely be terminated from drug court. Those who relapse can remain, although they'll get sanctioned, like spending a few days in jail. But those who commit crimes or abscond? You're wearing a jumpsuit and you can't leave, but it's drug. When you wake up, you go to class and um, you're getting sort of a concentrated drug court. Or if you were at the Betty Ford Clinic, and unlike the Betty Ford Clinic, the food's not very good. And your other um, classmates are convicted felons, addicts, whatnot, as opposed to movie stars and, and millionaires. Here's McBurney on a Judicial Council of Georgia video explaining the best parts of his job. That would be some combination of adoptions, very happy moments, uh, or working on our accountability courts, going to graduation for adult felony drug court, and the tingle that goes up and down your spine when the uh, host says that so-and-so is graduating with 712 days of clean time, um, and that individual's children are back in this person's life maybe a significant other, and um, in addressing the group, he or she talks about the job that the person now has. Um, you realize that that's what being here really is all about. It's rebuilding lives and, and getting folks back on a path that they've always wanted, but for reasons sometimes beyond their control, they weren't able to pursue it. This past April was McBurney's 10th year on the bench. Included during his tenure was a few years of being chief judge of the busy court. Here he is explaining how he got the job overseeing the special purpose grand jury, which kind of surprised us. Purely random. And again, all I have is supervising the grand jury work that's being done. But um, when the district attorney petitioned our bench for authorization to have a special purpose grand jury, um, the chief judge Brasher put it to a vote of the bench. And a majority of the bench voted to authorize the creation of the special purpose grand jury. Every special purpose grand jury has to have a presiding judge, regardless of the topic. It could be that they're just trying to figure out why is Grady Memorial Hospital so busy. And so they literally took, pulled, put 20 names in a hat and they filmed it. I haven't seen the film, but because of the subject of this special purpose grand jury. They wanted to document everything. Um, I pulled a name out of the hat and the name was my name. You could call it good luck. You could call it bad luck. It was um, chance and not at all me raising my hand. Just to be clear, it wasn't McBurney who picked his name out of the hat. It was a court administrator. Here's Bill again. Right. So was it good luck or bad luck? (laughs) It's been an interesting ride. I'll say that. In, in that case, you've obviously been, you know, I mean, everything you do in it is is watched very closely. I, I, I take it you know that, right? I've picked up on that. Bill asked the judge, so with all this public scrutiny, how different is this case from your normal ones? Is there extra pressure? Well, I certainly have to do what I think is the right thing according to the law. So I'm not, none of that changes. But um, given the microscope under which anyone connected to this has been placed, um, I I am more apt to double check things um, where 
uh, on another case, I might say, all right, I think I'm ready to go. I'm, I feel prepared. Let's let's get rolling with this hearing. Um, I might try to be even more prepared because um, if there is a misfire, someone's going to pounce on it. And it's not so much that I worry someone's going to say, Mick Bernie is an idiot, as they might say, this isn't being run in a way that's taking it seriously. We are taking it seriously. And if you aren't prepared, how seriously are you taking it? So that's the motivator is just to uh, make sure that if someone's going to call into question the legitimacy and the thoroughness and, and the care with which folks approach this, it's because they've got an agenda as opposed to he wasn't ready. He didn't hold people accountable for things. And so far, I think we've managed to avoid that. So people can be critical, but it's because they bring to bear a certain lens that they're viewing it through. On the bench, especially during hearings, McBurney clearly likes to have exchanges with the attorneys. Oftentimes, he'll be asking about the law or the facts of the case. I enjoy engaging with lawyers who are passionate about their client and know a lot about the law um, because I tend to learn more from that. And that makes me a better judge in terms of making rulings on the fly or thinking through things in a different way. So yes, I enjoy the engaging um, and the sort of brighter and more prepared the lawyer is, the uh, more I enjoy that engagement. McBurney is also not adverse during an attorney's examination of a witness to ask his own questions, which he's allowed to do. And he likes to speak colloquially when addressing parties from the bench. Try to be accessible. Um, you know, there are plenty of judges who'd like to throw in some Latin phrases or use big nine-syllable words, and you can do that. Um, but I think it's important that as many people uh, understand what you're trying to say and trying to do as possible so that they don't have to resort to a thesaurus to work it out. He's also got a sense of humor. I don't think I've ever seen him lose his temper, and I've sat in his courtroom on many, many occasions. He can also be quite expressive, waving his hands and arms around to make a point. And like we've said, he's a very good writer. Many people will find this surprising. Most superior court judges do not write their own opinions. Often, when they reach a decision, they'll instruct the lawyer for the winning side to prepare the order. That lawyer will write it up, submit it, and it's not unusual at all for the judge to simply sign his or her name without changing a word. It's quite something. I have long had problems with this practice. I was shocked when Bill first told me that, but that's often not the case with McBurney. For the big ones, I, I wrote all of it. Right. Uh, I take it with the Trump, uh, the the Trump one, or the the Fulton elections, or whatever we we call it. Um, I take it you write all those. Correct. The next logical step for McBurney, if he wants to try something else in public service, would be to become a federal judge, and that's an attractive job. Smaller caseload, lifetime tenure, don't have to run for re-election. But Bill points out one reason it may be difficult for McBurney to get a nomination. So, you, well, you've never been very political. No. Like, um, don't move in the Federalist Society circle or the American Constitution Society, whatever the left counterpart is to that. Those aren't right. my spaces. You know, it's, it's partly being a federal prosecutor, you don't want to... I, I didn't think it made sense to plug into an organization like that. And then as a judge, even more so, <laughs> I don't know how it makes sense to align yourself with the 
organization that has sort of political objectives. Not my call for everyone else, just my call for me. But most of all is, you know what? My job takes up a lot of my day. I've got kids, they play sports. I've got dogs, they like to run. And that's what I'm going to do with my free time as opposed to have a rubber chicken dinner with, you know, folks who are in this organization or that. Undoubtedly, McBurney will have some important decisions to make. Norm Eisen says, from the outside looking in, McBurney has impressed him. McBurney has really distinguished himself because he's been tough, but he's been tough on both sides. And um, DA has won the overwhelming majority of those battles, but in my view, uh, that's because she's been right on the merits and times You know, he's really spoken in the highest tradition of tough but fair judging. And by the way, his legal acumen as a judge, which is what you want, has also been very strong. For example, the parameters of the speech and debate clause that he laid out when he was ruling on Georgia state legislators are exactly what the Supreme Court ended up ruling on in the Lindsey Graham case. So, um... Uh, He's done a terrific job. Next on Breakdown. We'll be taking next week off. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. You know, when my daughter recently asked me about Thanksgiving dinner, I couldn't help but think of what happened a year ago. The Glynn County jury returning the day before Turkey Day with guilty verdicts against the three men charged with the murder of Ahmaud Arbery. That capped off the last season of Breakdown. I'm hoping this year's Thanksgiving will not be nearly so crazy. But we'll be back if anything major breaks. As always, thanks so very much for listening. We can't do this without you. Breakdown sound engineer is Shane Backler, and our podcast program manager is Jay Black. Thanks also to our presentation specialist, Pete Corson, our editors, Jennifer Brett and Dan Kleppel, our managing editor, Leroy Chapman, and the AJC's editor, Kevin Riley. And special thanks to the AJC's Metro columnist, Bill Torpy, who let us share the audio from his interview of Judge McBurney. You can follow our daily coverage on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, please subscribe to the AJC. Be safe and take care. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Tamar Hallerman. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. 
Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.